Experiencing the news each day can feel like a journey. With Up First from NPR, it doesn't have to be. Welcome to 15 easy minutes of breaking news, clarity on international and national affairs, all handed over not from some floating voice in the sky, from us, Layla, A, Steve, and me, Rachel. Start your day informed. Subscribe to Up First wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Brendan Slocum. I am the author of The Violent Conspiracy. Brendan Slocum is a musician, teacher, podcast host, and author, and his February 2022 release, The Violin Conspiracy, instantly hit bestseller lists. People are still raving about this one, so I leapt at the opportunity to speak with Brendan about his first novel, which was recently released in paperback. The book follows a young black musician, Ray, who discovers his instrument, a family heirloom, is worth a fortune and is stolen just before an international classical music competition. Brendan's own experiences with racism as a black classical musician inspired some of the events in the book, and I spoke with him about the impact of racism, his writing process, and how his rigorous musical training prepared him for publishing. I'm Beth Golay, and from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. Okay, so your novel, The Violin Conspiracy, was released earlier this year to much acclaim. It was Good Morning America's book club pick in February. And we're visiting because it's being released in paperback this month. So for those who are not familiar with the story, could you give a brief description of your novel for our listeners? Absolutely. First, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Violent Conspiracy is the story of Ray, who discovers that his old family fiddle is actually a priceless Stradivarius violin. And with this discovery, he is catapulted into superstardom in the world of classical music. And right before the Tchaikovsky competition, which is the Olympics of classical music, his violin is stolen. Will he get it back? Will he get to compete? Will he win? Who took it? Was it his family who thinks that he should sell the instrument so they could split $10 million? Was it the Marx family who think that because their great-great-grandfather owned Ray's great-great-grandfather, the violin is really theirs? Was it his teacher who may be jealous of him? Could have been anyone. So I understand that a lot of this story is your story. Ray's life mirrors your own. And some of the scenarios in the book happen to you. Many of the same situations of of racial injustice that happened to Ray were written from your firsthand experience. So talk to me about a couple of these mirrored situations between you and Ray, you know, like how music affected his life and, and your life, and maybe about some of the preconceived notions about Black musicians that the both of you experienced? Absolutely. Well, I started playing violin at age nine through a public school music program. And, you know, people just didn't get it. They didn't understand why I liked it so much, why I was so into it. And that that was tough because, you know, when people thought that I should have been out playing sports, which I did, I ran track, out playing sports or, you know, just doing regular teenage guy things, I was practicing my violin. You know, I just loved it. And the more I progressed, I would hear some of the most backhanded comments like, you're so much better than I thought you would be. And, you know, I'm really surprised that you are as good as you are. Just, you know, things like that I would hear all the time. And um, with some of the instances in Ray's life, uh, yeah, they were definitely taken directly from my experiences. The scene where Ray is uh, thrown in jail in Baton Rouge, the only difference between Ray and myself 
is that I didn't go to jail. The cop pulled me over for making an illegal lane change. This was pre-GPS. You know, I'm on my hands and knees with my hands up and a gun drawn on me just because I made an illegal lane change. It was it was insane. And the wedding scene was a modified version of what happened. Uh, that was the first time I'd really seen hatred in someone's eyes. And the father and the bride said, you ruined my daughter's wedding. And I, for the life of me, did not understand why, you know, did we play poorly? We hit every note. And I, you know, I thought the audience liked it. I thought it was great. Also, some of the good things that happened to Ray when he was playing uh, in college, some of the pieces that he was playing to acclaim, I, I, you know, that was taken directly from my experience. And I also had the most incredible teacher who I mirrored the character of Dr. Janice Stevens after my violin teacher, Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang. And, uh, you know, she she changed my life. She was the mentor that uh, basically put me on the path to where I am right now. And I am forever grateful. And I'm so happy that Ray had a person in his life as I did. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the people that Ray had in his life. And, and I'm thinking of three. I'm thinking of, you know, Grandma Nora and Aunt Rochelle. And did she receive that name after your <laughs> teachers? And Janice, some of the advice they gave. I mean, what did Ray have to do to, to fight these assumptions and injustices and prejudices? Well, Grandma Nora, first of all, is my maternal grandmother. And, you know, she was the absolute sweetest woman on the face of the planet, never had a bad thing to say about anyone. And, you know, I, I loved her dearly. And as I was writing her dialogue, I could hear her over my right shoulder, just, you know, her sweet voice and her pink and green rollers being left all over the house and everything. Uh, it was it was totally her. Ray is a very naive character. He's He's very naive because, you know, he just doesn't understand why people would act the way that they would act. You know, what did I do? I haven't done anything. I just want to play my violin. And I seem to be met with so many obstacles for some reason. You know, why is this not for me? Why can I not do this the same as, you know, Jimmy next to me? Why is it so much more difficult for me? But the advice that he got from the people in his life that were loving and caring towards him, it stuck with him. He really, truly believed that he knew that they loved him and had his best interests at heart. So he really took whatever it was that they said, their advice, you know, everything that they said, he took it to heart and he always carried it with him. So as you mentioned, one of the groups after the Stradivarius is the Marx family. Their family owned slaves, including Ray's great-great-grandfather, who was probably fathered by the Marx's great-great-great-grandfather, give or take a great. And there was no consideration of reparation. And regarding their efforts to get the violin, you know, some of their antics made me fearful for Ray and, and frankly sickened because of their plausibility. Like, I just mm -hmm. really felt like this could happen. My heart was racing and I was only reading about it from Ray's perspective. And as a white person, I'm not sure that we can understand that kind of daily fear. What do you want readers to know about the effects of racism? I, I want people to know that it is real. Racism is real. And the effects of racism are definitely real. And, and a lot of us carry those feelings with us. You know, we carry those experiences. I have had basically experiences with people who have racist tendencies since I was nine years old. And, you know, for decades, I've been carrying those around. And, and this book actually gave me the opportunity. It was, it was quite, uh, cathartic to be able to put them down on paper and have them validated. You know, when when I would tell people 
this is what happened. You know, this is what this person said. This is what I experienced. Most of the time I would be met with, nah, it's not really like that. You're just exaggerating. It, it can't be as bad as you're saying. And it really is real. And, you know, we've got to find a way not only to deal with it as victims. I hate to use the word victim, but um, not only do we have to find a way to to deal with it, but we also have to find a way to get people to understand that, you know, this is what you're doing. I like to you know, just give people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes people just are unaware just because their perspectives are so different than mine. You know, I can walk into a room and have a certain feeling. Other people can walk into the exact same room and have a completely different feeling. And, and like you mentioned, not even begin to fathom what it's like. And I think uh, awareness is really the key to people understanding, you know, these things really do happen. You know, the other group going after the violin is Ray's own family. Was it difficult to paint a family in in a negative light? Because this is fiction, but since Ray's life mirrors yours, you know, assumptions might be made about your own family. Yes, several assumptions have been made, (laughs) uh, especially about mom in the book. Uh, I I will go on record as saying mom is not my mom. I promise you she's not my mom. But in terms of the family dynamic, you know, we've all, every single one of us have dealt with family dynamics that have some level of dysfunction. And we all can relate to a dysfunctional family, maybe not to the extent of Ray's family, but to a certain extent, you know, we've all seen it, we've all experienced it. So it really wasn't too difficult to, you know, write uh, the family dysfunction scenes. But uh, I figured I wanted to make it as authentic as possible. You know, if I knew people that had the option, well, let me see, there's a violin that's $10 million. You can buy five violins, 10 violins with your share of the $10 million if you just sell it and split it with the family. I think that's a plausible, you know, that that's that's real. That's not too far-fetched. And I, I get how people would think that way. And, you know, I just wanted to uh, paint a picture that was as accurate as possible. So talk to me about your style of writing and plotting. Did you know how this was going to play out from beginning to end or were there (laughs) revelations along the way? I I love that question because in the beginning, uh, initially, well, first I am an outliner. I outline everything, you know, part one, part two, part three, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. You know, we're going to just follow this path and and see where it goes. But um, as I, I progressed in the book, I realized, wow, this is taking on so many, there's so many more directions I could go in. And by the time I finished writing, I had no idea who the culprit was going to be. <laughs> none, absolutely none. And I pulled in Agatha Christie, who's one of my favorite mystery writers. And, you know, I went back at the end and I decided it's going to be this person. And I went back and rearranged scenes and, you know, redid chapters and decided it was going to be the person that was going to be it. So to answer your question, I had no idea who was going to be the thief when I was initially writing. But everything was outlined when we see how much good that did. Well, I'm glad to hear that you rearranged chapters because that was one of my questions because we start at a certain point in time, but then we go back and learn about what happened leading up to that point in time and then what what followed. So, you know, you you did not write the chapters in the order that we read them. Is that accurate? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And there there are several chapters that are in my scraps pile. You know, the very first chapter that I wrote, it's sitting in my scraps pile right now. It was originally a bit too YA. It uh, was Ray in his high school classroom. And, you know, that that's the first chapter that I wrote. And that was the basis for this whole story. And yeah, I got put on the chopping block. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll see. Is it tough to kill your darlings? 
oh, you know, oh, yeah, it really does hurt. It hurts. And there, there's actually one character um, who I had to cut because he was taking over. Um, it was originally uh, Ray's manager, Drew. And when I tell you I could write an entire book about Drew, he literally stole the show and I had to, I had to cut him. And Hopefully he will make an appearance in a future book. I was going to say, it sounds like he needs his own book. So, you know, the number of black musicians in the classical music world are few. And the same could be said with regard to the number of published black authors. Were you treated with similar prejudices in your effort to publish this book as you have been with your music? Uh, Fortunately, no. I am so new to the writing world, the publishing world, this whole thing, and I've learned a great deal. Um, I am very, very, very fortunate to have an amazing uh, publishing team at Anchor Books. And, you know, when my agent, who was phenomenal, he he told me, he said, just, you know, uh, I'm not going to make you any promises. You never know. The first pitch that he gave to a major publishing company, I'm not going to say the name <laughs> because, you know, I just have no hard feelings. Um, they passed. And, you know, I wasn't thinking that it was because of anything. They just decided that the book wasn't for them. And uh, then Anchor picked it up. And I tell you, I I did have a few, uh, for lack of a better term, fights with some of the um, material in the book, because I actually heard from from some people, from some readers that, nah, this is a bit too far-fetched. Things like this don't happen. No, you, no, 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 no. You have to redo this because that is, no one's ever going to believe that. And then, unfortunately, during 2020, when, when the events of George Floyd happened, it became very, very evident that, whoa, things like this do happen. And huh, maybe you are onto something. Maybe you do know what you're talking about. So I I applaud my team for being very, very open to, you know, just receiving these stories, things that they were completely unaware of that now they have a really broad sense of things like this really do happen. So my hat is off to them. I always like to visit an author's website before I speak with them. And I have to tell you, yours left me exhausted and feeling like I should do more. So in addition to being an author, you're a music teacher, you provide private lessons, you perform around the world, you have a podcast, you found nonprofit organizations. Where does your work ethic come from? My work ethic actually comes from my musical training. It truly does. You know, I am so accustomed to when I was in college, I would practice three and a half hours daily, every single day, rain or shine. Whether I felt sick or 100%, I am in the practice room three and a half hours every day. And, you know, that's that's what I had to do. I wanted to impress my teacher. I wanted to get better because she believed in me. So it was whatever I need to do. And that has always been with me, you know, and, and I try to teach the same thing to my students. I tell them, I love to have a good time. We're going to have so much fun. It is going to be the time of your life after we get our work done. Let's get our work done. You know, and that's not not halfway do it. Let's get it done the right way. And then we can have as much fun as we want. So that is that is my mantra. You know, let's let's work hard and let's play hard. You know, it's it's hard work. Just it's not that bad. It really isn't so bad to, to do hard work. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. And once you get done, you're so gratified. The feeling is so satisfying. Once you know that you've put in the time and effort and you see the result, it's amazing. So it stuck with me for so many years and, you know, being able to play the violin and perform as a result of all the hard work that I've done, you know, it's totally worth it every second. And you have another novel coming out next year. Can you tell us about that? I, I do. I'm I'm really, really excited about my uh, sophomore book, Symphony of Secrets, which will be publishing in April. Just a quick elevator pitch. Symphony of Secrets is about America's greatest composer. He's bigger than Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn and Handel. He's huge around the world. 
his 150th anniversary celebration is coming up and his family who runs his foundation, which is synonymous with Walt Disney, this guy's name is known across the world for being philanthropic. They hire a musicologist to do some research into why his music is so loved by everyone across the world. During his research, the musicologist discovers this guy may not have written any of his music and it may have been appropriated from a black woman who we now know would be living with autism and the family will stop at nothing to keep that a secret symphony of secrets wow i hope we get to talk about that one next year i'm down anytime you want to have me back (laughs) well the book is the violin conspiracy brendan slocum thank you so much for joining us my pleasure thank you have a good one that was brendan slocum author of the book the violin conspiracy which was published by vintage Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.